How's it going, everyone? It's Kenneth here, and uh, today's podcast is with um, a restaurant in Cheltenham called The Looking Glass. Um, I had a chat with uh, Leon for around about an hour, something like that, and uh, it was really, really interesting to sort of uh, learn about their ethos and, and you know what they're all about and sort of how they got there. You know, we spoke about the whole sort of local food, and there's a lot of restaurants out there that sort of talk about buying stuff locally, and we sort of go into that slightly, but the way they have uh, sort of taken on um, local food and local produce is really, really inspiring. Um, and I'm sure loads of people out there with allotments and just general people would find it really interesting and, and inspiring to, to speak or hear um, what a, a chef and a, a small business owner um thinks about local food. So I won't go into it too much. Um, we kind of cover everything in the podcast. So uh, here we go. Hope you enjoy. Actually, quickly, before we start, um, I just realized that the audio, uh, while Leon and I are chatting, it sounds a bit strange in some points, but we are sitting in the restaurant and it is during the day. So there's no uh, people in the restaurant, but uh, obviously there's people, you know, getting ready for the service at night and, and that sort of thing. And for the first sort of five or ten minutes, every now and then there's this dull knocking and it freaked me out at first. I couldn't figure out until I isolated that sound and figured out it was uh, one of the chefs in the kitchen chopping something. So just bear with me for the first few minutes until that ends. So, um, you know, it's kind of, I didn't want to try to edit that stuff out because, you know, we were in the restaurant and that's where we were. So, yeah, that's it. So um, I'll do a little intro and stuff yeah, separately. Yeah. But we've uh, we've really had uh, quite a few, well, two discussions about about what you do. But um, and I'll, I'll do I'll explain a bit more behind the scenes. But it'd yeah. be good to know sort of how how you started, what made you want to open the restaurant, and you know, obviously you're a chef, so that's your yeah. background. But yeah, I think like, I think you have this. You get asked a, this, this the same question when you're a trainee chef from every single like manager or person. It's like you know, where do you see yourself in five years? Where do you see yourself as 10 years? And every chef says the same thing, like, oh, own my own restaurant, do this and this and this. And I think you go into it with this tunnel vision of that, like, opening your own restaurant is just going to be all about the food because you look at it through your own eyes, which is food. It's all mm. food related. But the most stressful thing here isn't about the food. It's about getting the bins collected once every other day. Yeah. <laughs> it's about making sure, like, the flowers are watered. It's like the stuff that you don't think about, yeah. Because the food comes second nature, you know. It's it's, and I think that's that's the stressful thing. And and you know, I think I read a book a, a very long time ago, and it said um, it said opening a restaurant's like really odd because all it takes is one person to have the key to open the door. Mm. And that's what Turk, my business partner, who I've known for ten years, just approached me one day out of the blue and was like, "Do you want to open a restaurant?" And I was like, "Sure, let's go for it." And then. Yeah, it took us five months. You know, we did everything. We we sanded the walls. We, we were here till one o'clock in the morning, mm. um, doing stupid stuff, trying to find dead rats in the ceiling because <laughs> the smell, which you'll never get rid of, yeah. um, and stuff like that. But for me, it was like that's the beauty. Of it. I can sit here now and I can look around. And I know a story about every single corner of the restaurant yeah. and stuff like that. And then I think like we we opened in a rush. It kind of went by so quickly. Four or five months of doing it up, and then. You know, when we opened, I didn't have this dream of being organic in my head. I didn't have this dream of of growing our own vegetables in my head. <laughs> of course, it's not wrong all day. Um, yeah, and then um, there we go. And uh, and yeah, and, and I kind of um, it kind of fell into my lap. This woman just—I I believe things happen for a reason. And mm. 
um, pretty much as you, you know, you getting in touch with us about the allotment thing, like yeah. two weeks after we kind of got the allotment, it was like meant to be, and yeah. then this woman just randomly came for dinner, and she said to me, oh, where'd you get your beef from? And I said, oh, we get it from a butcher just in Bristol. And she said, oh, I live, she said, you know, I live five miles up the road, and um, yeah, she was like, I 100% grass-fed beef. Um, the cows are fed legumes, they're changed, um, their turf's changed every single day, we move them a third, and then we relay further plants, and I went up to the farm, and, and I've never seen anything like it, you know, the cow lives, they, they live better than me. Yeah. And I think that kind of opened my eyes to this kind of like, you know, you are what you eat, eat mm. right? Like, this is like, and then you look into the vegetables, and then all it takes, I mean, you know, we spoke about it last time, you Google, the basic manufacturing practices of, of how we harvest tomatoes and vegetables that you see in the shop and it just kind of opened my eyes and then we did a very simple test of getting some organic carrots in to some kind of donkey crop carrots um, and we just te tested the sweetness of the organic ones and it's 20% more sweetness, more carrotness to it yeah. than a normal carrot and I'm like that's what people say when they say that it doesn't taste like a carrot anymore that's the test. Um, and yeah, and so long story short, I think for us, it is all about now, like the fresher the ingredient, mm. the less manipulation we have to put, put it through yeah. to make it taste better. That's if it. we get, you know, we keep talking about radishes as like the pinnacle <laughs> yeah. of that, but a radish is like the, the simplest form of, of the rawest ingredient and just, yeah, not even touching it, just eat it. And yeah. it's just the sweetest, beautiful thing you can eat. And, and I think that for us is the way forward. Um, kind of a celebration of agriculture yeah. and as a restaurant surely we're at the forefront of pushing that to people yeah. you know, more, more so than the shops because when they come out we want them to taste it and go I, I think food used to be about coming out and you'd order something and say well I want to order something that I can't make at home mm. you know, you'd go I want to order this, this this duck dish that has been manipulated in 40,000 different ways so it doesn't look like a duck because I couldn't do that at home mm. where now you're like I don't want that I want to taste a vegetable that I can't cook like at home. Yeah. And I think for us, the exciting thing is, is to do a vegetable that's uncooked and say, well, you can do it at home. Yeah. You can grow it organically. You can buy it orga organically. You know, what we're doing is we're educating you and saying that like the less manipulation that you put up on this carrot, the better it will be. And I think so far we've had great feedback. Like, yeah. like people like yourself are buying into that ideal. Um, so yeah. I think you hit on a few notes there. Like I think at the moment, uh, and I speak to loads of people about it. The traceability of food is becoming more and more important to mm -hmm. people. And for them, uh, and, and what you're doing, could, I speak about this in other podcasts and a lot of other videos, is that people have lost connection with their food because you go into a massive multinational yeah. and the food's there and it's come from like Senegal again to radishes. I found radishes in Tesco's from Senegal. And yeah. so, so society as a whole over the last 30, 40, 50 years have completely lost touch with their food. So what excites me a lot about what you're doing is that you almost start becoming that link between people and farmers because small farms don't exist like they did yeah. years and years ago and you know um, you can start telling all your customers well you know this came from down the road our beef came from five miles down the road yeah. I know that the farmers that looked after these cattle I know where they came from I know exactly when yeah. everything happened and you it's I think that's really really important for um, for everyone to start learning yeah and it, it's it's becoming more and more popular and I hope hopefully in the next sort of five or six years um, people 
will know more about where their food co comes from and they will insist on wanting to have local local produce yeah and i think and i think it's really odd but i think the uk has, has fallen behind of this food trend it's like um you know the us is like big on this local farms mm -hmm. now um most of Europe's kind of got behind it and pushing these small farms, but I think we just got greedy. Yeah. And I think we got greedy in a way of, of saying that, you know, the world is our oyster when it comes to fruit and veg. So why should we buy locally? Mm. Why should we pick an apple from a tree and eat it? You know, like yeah. the, the, amount of, the amount of people that I, that I say to about fresh apples and pears, and they say, oh, there's a tree down the road, but we don't pick it, you know, because it's slightly blighted or it's slightly, um, it looks slightly rotten. And I'm like, but that's one. That's, yeah. that's one on a whole tree of pears, yeah. you know? And they probably walk past that tree to go to the supermarket to buy pears. Yeah. Um, like you said, from Israel, from Senegal. Like, and I think at first, when we first opened, I thought it was really kind of pretentious of us to try and be this education res restaurant and be like, you know, where are you buying your vegetables from? Because, you know, my wife's guilty of it. We'll have strawberries in the fridge that have come from Egypt mm. that are white, you know, and they contain 90% water. <laughs> and my little son loves to eat them. But I think until we start pushing it on people and, and, and trying to educate and trying to say that like you know it's okay to eat stuff that's not in season but just preserve it or it's okay to eat stuff that isn't season and, and get used to that taste and yeah. especially wild foods and stuff you know there, there's I read something um, the other day there's um, around 4,000 different wild species of plants and foods available on your doorstep on your doorstep that no one knows about, yeah. you know, because we're so used again to going to the shop and looking at a recipe and saying, "Oh, I need, I need thyme for this. I need tarragon for this. I need a specific herb." Going to the shop and buying this herb from Israel, or buying this, and you don't know the growing conditions in Israel. You don't know what's been sprayed onto that, and yeah. and so I think, yeah, it's it's very tough. It's very tough to try and teach people to care about traceability yeah. in a sense of the way they do with eggs now, the yeah. way they do with beef now. Um, but I definitely think veg, vegetables in general are the next big push. Yeah. It has to be. Well, I mean, I've seen a trend. I mean, it might just be because I'm involved in that on Instagram. Like, I follow loads of people from all over um, the, the country that have allotments. And it just seems like it's more popular. Again, that might just be me in, like, an echo chamber seeing it all. But uh, just by interacting with all of them and speaking to them, it, it just seems like they're putting a huge amount of importance on it. And... Um, one of the ladies I follow, her and her partner, um, I think they moved from London to Dorset and she kind of came into my mind as soon as um, we met because she did this whole thing of eat British for a week and their challenge was to only buy British produce oh, wow. for a whole week, everything they ate and I, I didn't follow the whole journey um, on Instagram but you know she was showing pictures of the meat and well, my husband got this pheasant from a shoot the other day and wow. we got this from here and um, it's just really great to see that and hopefully it, it gains momentum over over the next couple of years because like you said it does feel like we're in the uk far a bit far behind compared yeah. to what other countries are doing yeah i don't i don't know what happened because i think you know the whole american idea of the culinary scene was that they had you know they they had access to absolutely any vegetable from any part of the world they could get and i think you know you, you look at what kind of my my mum and dad and and my my um, grandparents used to eat, and it was solely based on grains and it was yes. solely based on stuff that you know a lot of root vegetables and stuff like that and and preserving it and I think half half the stuff we're doing here a lot of people say to me like oh this new this new method of of, of um, 
you know, baking things in hay or storing things in hay, and and uh, it's not a new method. Yeah, this has been done, you know, <laughs> since 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 the first World War. Yeah, this is how they preserve the fruits. This is how um, a lot of the stuff we do is from WI recipes. Mm. You know, the jams and stuff because that's what they had to do. And I think people, you know, I think there's a whole generation gap that missed out on that style of cooking. Yeah, and I think you know, you, you talk to the older generation. <laughs> And they know it, and they love it, and they, yeah. and they tell me stuff, and I'm like, that's amazing. I never knew you could store green beans in layers of salt. I never knew you could store stuff like that. And but there's this whole generation gap, and I think it it kind of coincides with the whole, not to get deep into it, but the whole internet thing. And I think yeah. everything's everything's instant, and that's whether that's a table booking, whether that's a review, whether that's food online, whether that's takeaways, and mm. including now, you know, online ordering of vegetables. You. You can click on it. You don't know where it's coming from. You just click yeah. in. I want this. I want this. I want this, and it gets delivered at your doorstep. Yeah. Um, and I think that that coincides with this kind of big push on on vegetables and people not caring. You mm. know. Um, but it's like you said. I think uh, it's is solely based because you're in this tunnel of allotments and veg. You start noticing it more. Yeah. Um, and I think it, it's got to be the next big thing to blow. You know. You look at the the battery um battery hen eggs yeah. that, that kind of the, the big blow up the horse meat scandal and and stuff like that the next big thing to go has to be vegetables yeah. because so many local farms that i know grow beautiful stuff are crying out for this outlet to to sell it but yeah. everyone just drives past and goes to the local supermarket or so yeah so i think it, it, it's an exciting year for us and, yeah. and and i think especially you coming on board again just kind of coincides with our movement um yeah so well, well that's the power the, the positive side of the internet yeah and I was just telling my wife the other day it's like um, we met through Facebook I just you know what I saw the post I, I knew the last year you were sort of linking up with other allotment holders yeah. and taking surplus vegetables and that's when I liked your page and then all of a sudden it just popped up on my newsfeed however like three weeks ago four weeks ago when I when I messaged you oh we've got our first allotment and I was like I would have wouldn't have really known that if it wasn't for Facebook yeah and you know so it, it's the internet's good in a sense that there's so much information freely available mm -hmm. and it's connecting people a lot easier than it would have been uh, you know years ago yeah. um, what else was I going to say now about uh, the internet oh yes um, someone had found one of the videos I made on YouTube and then they couldn't email me on there because there's no sort of uh, native messaging service yeah. they found me on Facebook and messaged me saying oh I've just found your videos it's really cool I'm doing a photography, a photography project. Can I come take some pictures on your allotment? And I was like, oh, that's cool. And wow. that's again the power of the internet um, can be useful. It's so it's it can be so powerful and be used for positive things. Yeah. And hopefully, um, like you said, we're getting into that point where there'll be a bit yeah. more momentum. You know. Um, yeah, I think a lot of the kind of thinking back to a lot of the a lot of the things we kind of took on here came from that social like social media posts. And I think. Um, you know, before we opened this place, I was never, I was never active on social media. It wasn't until, um, yeah, like um, one of the managers said, like, "Oh, get you know, get on, get on these um, Instagram and stuff like that, and start posting pictures." And and then, yeah, you know, six weeks ago, we had a guy who um, works at a lo local pottery um, in Winchcombe, and you know, he contacted me and said, "You know, I make um, plates. I can do bespoke plates, stuff oh, like cool. that. Like, come down and see me." and and again, you know, that's great. We could have a guy making all our plates, making our candle holders and, and stuff like that. Because I think it became a bit of a niche, didn't it? Farm, farm to fork cooking, they used mm -hmm. to call it. Um, and it wasn't a farm. It was just the local veg company yeah. who got it from a farm. <laughs> and then you put a fork in it and it was farm to fork. Yeah. And, then, and then the whole kind of trend went towards, like, keep it local. But, like, 
where's local? Where, where, do you, where do you class as local? You yeah. know, and and so in in a way, I think our whole ethos kind of limits us sometimes into being able to put certain things in the menu because we, we solely deal with like British produce, UK produce, local produce. Mm. But at the same time, there's no better way to force you to be creative. Yeah. Half the cocktails we have on the menu require lemon juice, you know, and, and so we just use our homemade vinegars um, that are sweetened to different varieties and, and it allows us to kind of look into the food like through the looking glass, minus the... Yeah. Forgive the gimmick, but um, <laughs> but you know, for instance, like if we were to do something pickled, we don't just say, "Oh, let's just use a vinegar." We say, "Well, well, what vinegar would add depth of flavour to that?" Yeah. You know. Um, so, for instance, with a fish dish, we we pickle um, some turnips with purslane vinegar, mm. so you get that saltiness and freshness to mm. match the sea, and and it's that kind of in-depth thing, and then it, it allows us to be really simple on the plate, but when you eat it, you can taste the depth and you taste the seasons. Um, which yeah, which for us is obviously coming out of kind of the hunger gap, the difficult growing season. Yeah. Um, now we can start getting fresher stuff in and a bit more colour on the plates yeah. than just brassicas and artichokes. <laughs> Speaking of artichokes, um, last time I was here, you you gave me some of that artichoke fudge, and it was really amazing. Mm. Um, tell us a bit more about like from what you explained last time. You're quite inventive with with how you do things. Like you told me about the courgettes and how you use those mm. and I'm sure lots of people that have allotments will be listening to this and they would be blown away about what you did you know so you're doing all these things and you're finding really creative ways to use what you have um, and you like you said you almost have to be because yeah. a lot of your stuff or all your stuff is really local and, and British so there's a um, there's a one of kind of my, my idols of like kind of the whole agriculture and farm to fork cooking is a chef called Dan Barber and uh, he's responsible for kind of five new species of vegetable and grains himself oh, wow. that he's created, which in you know in the modern world is amazing. Mm. And basically, he kind of looks at farming in the same way as you'd look at making a dish. So when you make a dish, you look at kind of your, your three core things, so like flavour, protein, and vegetables. And then you look, well, what can I do to those to make it pretty on the plate? And he, look, he approaches farming in the same way. So he's kind of like, he, he looks at soil. So what can I do to the soil to give that vegetable the best chance and the best flavour? What can I do to that species of vegetable? Is that the best seed? Can I look at changing the seed? Can I hybrid the seed? And, <clears throat> and kind of go from there. And with that approach, we had um, somebody bring in two black bags full of these courgettes and there's like one courgette flower on there and if there is any kind of like you know chefs listening they know that the courgette flower is normally like the esteemed bit of the courgette that you yeah. take off and then the courgette's normally sliced up into ratatouille or soup and you serve the flower for you know 14 pound on the menu stuff with goat's curd and <laughs> you have two and that's it yeah and we had loads of these stalks left and um and yeah, we had a woman who was saying to me that she normally like dices them up and puts them into a chutney. And she says, but you've got to peel the, the stalk down. You've got to peel the stalks. We, we spent ages peeling this stalk down and it came down quite easy. And then when you actually look at the um, that kind of the fibrous um, style of it, it looks like pasta. Mm. So it has the same white ring of al dente cooking. And we're like, okay. So we cooked it in water and it took 20 minutes. And I was like, it's got a bit of courgette flavor to it. And we just added salt and parmesan, and you think you were eating, you, you were eating this beautiful courgette pasta, but it's just it's just this stock. And then I got chatting to a woman at the allotment, and she said, "Oh yeah, she was like they grow like weeds." Yeah, she was like they're just like most of the time you're just chopping them down just to get to the actual courgette. And I thought that's amazing. That is something that like if, you know if we were to grow courgettes, we could literally use a, probably ninety percent of the plant in a dish. Mm. Um, 
and so yeah so we did so um so then we put it on a dish with um where the courgettes pickled and then we had the courgettes um kind of stalks cooked um in water like vegetable stock and then we got some spouting and we cut that like risotto in, in courgette um courgette puree and we just did this kind of like risotto dish that was purely based on english grains local courgettes 90% of it and we actually kept the, and we actually gave the flour away back to the London woman <laughs> so she was quite happy yeah. Um, but yeah but I think a, a lot of the time you know a, a lot of the best restaurants in the world are the best ideas come from research and come mm. from development and I think that's one thing that, that we're really pushing this year is whenever we get a surplus of stuff in it's not just going right we've got loads of quince let's make quince paste we've got loads of artichokes um, let's just make soup let's just make puree it's like what can we do with it and, you know with the artichokes we found out you know, once you juice it and reduce it down, it literally goes like this this toffee colour that's just absolutely insanely delicious. Mm. And we found the same with parsnips and we found the same with carrots. Um, and who knows, who knows what else you could do it with, yeah. you know? Um, and I think from there, it just kind of, it's a nice little touch for us to, to add to the end of the meal that's mm. kind of like, everyone loves fudge, right? Yeah. So why not do a fudge our way instead mm. of just doing it simple? Um, and that's it. And I think, you know, we, we had a dish on when we first opened which was carrot cake and thinking back it was like it was kind of the epitome of what we were trying to do so a carrot cake recipe probably contains 70% of ingredients that we can't use yeah. coconut mixed spice cinnamon um, and we you know we found this um, this flower called yarrow and it grows everywhere mm. like if I showed you you'd see it everywhere from now on but if you dry it and sprinkle it into a cake it has the taste of mixed spice of oh, cinnamon wow. of coconut and which it just landed on our lap again mm. like it was meant to be um so yeah so we put this in this carrot cake and then we're like right, we need to make toffee but what can we do toffee our way instead yeah. of just taking sugar that obviously we can't get local <laughs> yeah um and we found yeah we reduced carrot down and it, we just it, it was carrot toffee with no sugar it was mm. just pure carrot juice and i was like and again the difference in getting donkey crop carrots and reducing it down and you'd get, you know, 10% yield of toffee. But if you get organic carrots that have more sweetness in it, you just have 50% more toffee. Yeah. So, you know, we were paying extra for these organic carrots, but the actual yield in it in toffee was, was insane. Mm. And I think, again, you know, through that dish, a lot, of, a lot of what you see is like the finished article, but you don't see the six weeks of like burning the artichokes or <laughs> yeah. of like oh, like finishing the product waiting for a day for, for it to set tasting the fudge and going like it doesn't taste anything like artichoke yeah. it just tastes like fudge <laughs> um, so yeah so I think that, that's the that's the important thing for us is to trial and error really mm. um, you know we finally got our homemade kombucha on the menu but you know we, we had three three bats of it that kind of exploded because the yeah. fermentation was too rapid and stuff like that so it is a lot of development but I know all about kombucha. I used to brew it as well. I used to oh, make wow. 25 liters at a time. Oh my God. And it took up a lot of space in our kitchen. And I just, I stopped doing it basically. But I, I gave the kit to my friend because we had loads of cultures and oh, wow. and stuff. So if you ever want more cultures, I'll be able to get some for you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But, uh, it's an amazing thing as well. And that's something that, you know, again, that's being made in the restaurant, which is really Exactly, cool. yeah. exactly. Well, yeah, I mean, half our cocktail stuff. So we put, we put cocktails back on two weeks ago. And every night we've sold, you know, we've sold one of each cocktail. Um, every single night and I think before a lot of people when we first opened it was almost like we had to simplify everything we did so like people could trust us so like you know if we put kombucha on the menu when we first opened no one would order it they'd be like fermented drink what are you talking about you know and and even kind of like the cultured butter you know Mm. like cultured salad butter 
like we'd, we'd find that just people was, wouldn't be interested in that. What is? It? I've never even heard of that. What is it? <laughs> so basically, you um, so culture is just taking something that's that's previously been fermented and yeah. backslopping it into something else. Um, so what we do is we get um, pure unpasteurized cream. We let it go sour for four days, mm. and we backslop it with some buttermilk from a previous culture, and then um, from there it's about five days old. We then um, churn it churn it by hand like traditional methods and then we pass it off we save the buttermilk which goes into our ice cream and custard on desserts mm. which is amazing um, it has like a soured clotted cream taste which saying that it tastes better than it sounds <laughs> um, and then yeah and then we salt it we roll it and then we use traditional butter paddles to finish mm. it off um, sure but it's just I mean I'm northern so me bread, for me bread and butter is such a big thing mm. and like when we make the butter here the ends are always going on a piece of bread for me to taste yeah. obviously um, but yeah it's, it's just amazing and I think especially when you sit down and that bread comes out I think the, the customer then knows that like okay this is going to be all about like the individual grains the individual butters and stuff like that and yeah. um, and it is it's, and I think that's again moving back to what we want to celebrate here moving forward it is a celebration of agriculture you know the breadboard we're going to do is going to be um, one of each grain and celebrating that grain to kind of showcase what old agri- agriculture used to be. It used to mm. be stock rotation and grain rotation because yeah. it was better for the soil. You know, you'd, you'd swap between rye and spout and then you go back to traditional wheat because it would feed nutrients into the soil. Mm. But because obviously supply got so big, yeah. um, demand got so big that they had to kind of supply just constant wheat and it just ruined the soil just industrialized versions of it exactly. it's all the same you know just it grows really quickly they can tell when it's going to be ready what yield exactly. it's going to give exactly and you know, you know yeah. uh, thousands of years ago they used to um this grain um i think it's got einhorn i think we spoke last time yeah um and they planted it everywhere because it would just grow in the worst conditions mm. clay soil dry soil wet soil and it grew and it just turned into this grain that that kind of everyone used the problem was was um, they were so hard to get out of the ground mm. um, because uh, the roots I think were four times bigger than the actual grain plant. Sure. <laughs> and so you so you couldn't you couldn't just yeah. do it by hand. You yeah. need it was a full system of turning over the ground, and so they didn't want to do it because mm. it was a lot easier to grow wheat that was you know half a length in, in, into the soil. Yeah. Um, and and then from there you know I think we just ruined this whole biodiversity in the in the soil and. Well, the crazy thing about that is, though, is when you, I mean, I don't know a huge amount of it, but when you've got roots that are growing down into the ground, uh, yes, please, um, and they, they're going into the soil, it's, it's, and when you pull them out, you've naturally aerated the soil yeah. without having to go and till really yeah. deep. And when you till really deep, you break down the structure of the soil yeah. and you break down all the, um, is it microfungal and all the, the rhizomes of, of everything down yeah. there. So it, that, would have probably been a hundred times better for the soil, even though yeah. it was a bit more difficult because you're naturally aerating it, the roots exactly. are going down and spreading out and making space for organisms and life and all that kind of thing. Exactly, you know? exactly. Yeah. I think the um, I um there's a there's a guy called John um John Kempf and he's American, um he owns like an agriculture company and he does a lot of podcasts actually mm. about this organic movement in America. And one of the things that he, he does is he has a giant map of one of these old roots of a grain that they used to plant. And he says that, like, you know, look at this as like a blueprint, as you would of a house. And he's like, this is what used to allow the nutrients of the soil to travel around. Yeah. He's like, and now literally cut that into a quarter. He's like, it's like limiting your journey to work, you know? Mm. It's like, 
used to do this much and now you're doing this much so therefore you're not spreading anything you know yeah. the worms are constricted to this certain space yeah. the nutrients aren't going down you know like you said the micro fungi aren't spreading yeah and there's no nutrient going deeper into the soil um and i think you know one of the tests he did was i mean we spoke loosely about um was it black flies that attacked your broad beans yes yeah yeah <coughs> and weirdly enough again i think a week before we spoke about that i was listening to one of his podcasts and he said that um you know he planted eight row corn um and right next to it, giant clover leaves. And these black flies were just, you know, hundreds and thousands of them attacking these clovers. But the, the, the eight-row corn was untouched mm. because it was the healthiest species. It was just, they, he just, he knew that the nutrients in the soil were the best for this, this corn to grow. And I think that's the excitement thing for me. I could never get into gardening before because I'm so impatient, as we spoke about. Yeah. And like, I kind of, I want, I want things now. I want to plant that. I know that it's ready in two weeks and I'll pick it. And I couldn't get my head around the methodical way of gardening. It just mm. didn't seem to be methodical. And then I kind of looked into this whole organic movement and it, it kind of just made sense all of a sudden. It was like, well, hang on, yeah, if you're feeding the soil mm. the very best nutrients that soil can have, therefore the vegetable is going to grow in, in the best conditions. Um, and again, it's kind of like looking at vegetables as you would a cow. If you, if you put a cow in, in a barn and it doesn't see sunlight and it eats dirty hay and it's, it's going to be the worst meat ever yeah. but if that cow's looked after it would mm. be the best beef if the chicken's looked after the best eggs the best chicken and, um, and so I think yeah it's looking at vegetables with that approach um, that's the bit that excites me yeah. um, and keeps me from planting something upstairs in a grow bag that just won't work <laughs> it's crazy though because when I first started growing you were mentioning about the patience and it, it is one of someone told me once that planting vegetables or planting a garden is to believe in the future because so much of it is about patience and yeah. I didn't realize that when you first started like a lot of people don't they don't realize like what a carrot seed looks like or what yeah. a radish. They, they don't know how long it takes to grow and germination and what's mm -hmm. required for germination um, and it's it's great to learn about that because then uh, from your side it'll make you more aware of when things become ready yeah and, you know how the different stages of growth you, where you could use things like you know thinning out carrots you yeah. can eat those carrot thinnings with small carrots yeah, they're really yeah. sweet and they look really nice on a plate and you know yeah. the thing is the thing is as well as I think like you know every every supplier we've used since opening this place and you know before this place <coughs> I was I was part of that chain of problem of like I would pick up the phone at night and I'd make an order of a veg supplier and I'd say I want your best baby carrots Mm. And you know they get delivered, and the polystyrene box that the carrots would come in weighed more than the actual carrots. Yeah. Um, and you know and stuff like that. And then you know you get radishes, and the and the baby radishes would come in a cellophane box, and the cellophane box was actually bigger than the baby radishes, and mm. the radishes were tied up with four elastic bands, and mm. they looked really pretty. And then you cook them and did it, and then when you taste it, it doesn't taste anything. You know because they've been forced to grow. They, yeah. they haven't had to deal with harsh environments mm. to, to to kind of turn that natural sugar. And and I think. For us here now, it's kind of like, I want to get a fresh carrot in, and I want the top of the carrot, and I want to use the carrot tops, mm. because they're beautiful, you can pickle them, you can put them in a salad, but you can't get them anywhere. Yeah. You can't get them anywhere, because the carrots aren't grown like that anymore. Yeah. You know, same as radishes, you yeah. can't get radishes these days, with like long tops, and if you do, you pay through the nose from it, or, yeah. they're, or they're from another part of Europe, yeah. um, or they come in a little cone. In a little cone, that plastic bag, bright red, and they just tasted nothing. They're 90% water, and you get a little hint of radish, which is why people don't like radishes. Yeah, um, yeah maybe we should just call this pod podcast a celebration of radish. <laughs> well, the, one of the first podcasts, was it the first? No, the first podcast I did with the people that I had the allotment with, we spoke about courgettes all the time, just because 
think we had like seven or eight courgette plants and we basically had courgettes coming out of our ears. Wow. There's just one of those vegetables that just go absolutely nuts. Amazing. So, um, yeah, so that was the courgette podcast. This is the radish That's podcast. That's it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, hopefully lots of people in Cheltenham will be listening to this. So, um, yeah, obviously I've got people to listen to it from all over the country, but for people that are listening in Cheltenham, um, like what what were your your opening hours and when how did they book a table that kind of thing Um, so we've just so two weeks ago we launched our online booking system which is on our website thelookingglassjoutnam.co.uk good plug that wasn't it yeah and then uh, (laughs) you can also find us (laughs) Um, it'll be on our Facebook it's on our Google page and um, and we kind of just we wanted to again you know the good part of the internet Mm. is that that people want things instant now and we found that we were having so many phone calls, but people weren't leaving voicemails. Yeah. Um, and you know, our bookings, I think we, we, 50% of our bookings in February are now online, which yeah. is crazy. But yeah, so you can find us on there. Um, we've just opened for breakfast Friday, Saturdays, oh, cool. um, which tend to get um, booked up, like last week fully booked, this week's getting fully booked. Mm. Um, everything's organic, everything's made in house, apart from sausage and the bacon, which is organic. We make black pudding, we make beans, um, our bread, our sourdough, which is on the breakfast menu, is all made in house. We have fermented um, grain porridge on there, so spout, millet, um, stuff like that, um, which is, yeah, really tasty. Um, And then we've just launched an early bird menu, which runs Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, Mm -hmm. um, which is free courses for £20. Um, Yeah, and then Tuesday to Saturday, we're open dinner time, 6 till 9.30. Cool. Um, So, yeah. Yeah, that was a big plug, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, no, that, that, that's what it's all about, you know. I mean, um, it, it's just it's cool for people to listen about your, your ethos yeah. and where you come from because, you know, it's not very often, well, I'm sure there's lots of passionate chefs out there, but to hear someone so passionate about food and British yeah. food and, you know, being really authentic is cool. But then also, local people need to know about you and yeah. how to find you. So you're at Facebook, Instagram, online, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, all that stuff. Twitter, um, I think we're on Twitter as well now. Cool. Um, so stuff like that, moving with the social media side. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but I think w- one of the things we're kind of, we've always stayed true. So a lot of our goals have kind of changed. We've only been open six months, but a lot of our, you know, at first we weren't going to go fully organic. We had like 80% organic wines and some stuff like that. And and then again, like the more we looked into it, the more I was like, actually, like we need to push this. We mm. need to like be at the forefront of this. And then one of the things that's always stayed true is that we are a local restaurant. And I know that sounds corny coming from kind of like a fine dining British kind of place, but we are, you know, we still have the same people coming on a Wednesday night who just have one course and just have a main course and they sit there and they know us and, mm. and that's what we want to be. We don't want to be this big chain that, yeah. that just copies what we do and move it somewhere else. And, you know, part of the allotment scheme that we launched last year, um, which we will be doing again this year, if you are listening, um, <laughs> Um, you know, was because we took a, the first month of opening, we took a walk down to the allotments and there was just so much produce going to waste because mm. you forget that, you know, courgettes, people grow courgettes and, and by the second week they're sick of them, yeah. you know, same <laughs> as with the beans, same as anything really, tomatoes, yeah. you know, there's only so much you can eat as a yeah. family. And so we just kind of, uh, we got in touch with the, the parish council who were great actually and they just said, yeah, we'll put this on our social media, you put it on yours. And we were expecting, you know, marrows and courgettes by the bucket load. But some of the stuff we got in, you know, I didn't know you could get produce that good mm. in Britain. Yeah. Some of the plums we got in were, I think I think we ate like half the produce of plums <laughs> that we got in. So just sat there because, yeah. you know, I don't normally like plums, but they're just beautiful stuff. Um, mm. 
and there's a woman actually who's um, who's based in Evesham and, and she came for Sunday lunch just by chance and she came in the kitchen at the end and she was like honestly she was like last year I gave away probably you know 20 kilos of organic fruit and vegetables wow. <laughs> just because I grew so much and yeah. I didn't know what to do with it and she's like you know when, I, when it starts growing again I'll get in contact can you, you want to come and pick it up and I was like absolutely and it's yeah. not it's not just about us trying like trying to get free fruit and veg you know we gave out these little allotment vouchers that kind of started as this membership scheme so every time every month you brought it in you got 10% off for that month you can come as much as you want you yeah. can use that card as much as you want because it's not about us trying to make maximum profit from it it's about you bringing some rhubarb in two days later coming in and you could potentially have a dish that's had that rhubarb on rather yeah. than let it sit at the allotment um, and that goes you know there's a local guy called Nigel who's absolutely insane he, he brought us probably 40 kilos of crab apples um, and you know after four kilos we didn't want any more but we didn't yeah. have the heart to tell him <laughs> um, but you know with that again like you mentioned crab apple to people and they say the same stuff crab apple jelly mm. and you know that's all they do yeah. is just crab apple jelly we, we made cordials, we had crab apple fudge on the menu, um, we had crab apple chocolate fondant in the centre, um, and it's just, it was amazing to, to, to force ourselves to go, well actually, what is that flour, sourness? Mm. Something must need sourness in a recipe, yeah. how can we adapt that? And, <clears throat> and that's it really, and I think, for people bringing stuff in, we will always, we always name drop, we love a name drop. So one of the first things we ever put on was this Pam, local Pam she was called, and she just dropped off some blackberries once. And um, she confused everyone by saying, um, these are cooking blackberries, which I, I, to this day, I've never heard anybody say that like, this is a, eat raw, this is a, this is a raw blackberry, but you have to cook these ones. And, um, and we put them on the menu. And like two days later, we had a woman who lived next door to this pub who was bragging about bringing blackberries here. Yeah. And she was like, it's amazing to actually see on a printed menu, yeah. like local Pam's blackberries. Yeah. Um, and you know, for us, I mean, we've got, we, we just went out of our slow gin that we made when we first opened. My mother-in-law makes slow gin every single year. So we just bought some black um, slow gin off her and, and that's on the menu. And, you know, we've got 10 year old slow gin oh wow sure you know that, that's like port and you know we, we had to sample half a bottle kind of, so <laughs> just to make sure it required okay. a very late night and yeah. a very um, very, <laughs> very very bad headache the next morning but yeah. but you know stuff stuff like that is, is great and, yeah. it, and and again it's almost buying into that heritage heritage of like you know like you can't you can't buy 10 years worth of of that sitting on a shelf in a store anywhere yeah um and so yeah so i think you know the whole especially linking up with you now as well with, with the whole like your dream being to supply a restaurant mm. I just think there's, there were so many times when we were building this that it was meant to happen like um, for those that have been and are listening we've got these green and white tiles on the walls and our colour pattern before we opened was green, white and black mm. and these tiles were covered up it wasn't until just by chance we took down the stud wall oh, cool. and we discovered the green and white tiles and it was like just meant to be yeah. it's just one of those things yeah. that um, so yeah and then the whole looking glass thing like it just tied in with like how we look at the food and it is a bit of a gimmick we're not a gimmick restaurant if you haven't been we haven't got a mad hat on a tricycle serving <laughs> the food um, but it just ties into kind of we want people to look into to bread and to butter and to, into local you know yeah, speaking of that you've got these little um, obviously no one's going to be able to see this um, because it's on the podcast but you, um, on every single table there's a little booklet and uh, I haven't actually had a chance to read the one you gave me yet, but it tells a bit about. Go, okay, well, you explain it. You'll know better than I am. Yeah. So basically, we had a lot of we had a lot of people. It started with a single dish. We put a, a venison dish on, 
and um, we had loads of acorns. We went foraging, and one of the first things we got was acorns. Mm. And not a lot of people know you can eat acorns. And so we put them on the menu, and um, it came from my walk past the table, and they were both googling, "Can you eat acorns?" Mm-hmm. Because, <laughs> and I just thought, I just thought, isn't it crazy that, yeah. like, even though you're sat in a restaurant that serves food, you still don't trust what you can or cannot eat. Mm. And I think it goes back to not knowing what's on your doorstep. And, you know, I remember as a kid, my mum telling me that, like, you know, don't pick a blackberry shit off the bush, you can't eat that. Yeah. And I think back to that now, and I think, that's crazy. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like, but you can eat it from a packet. Yeah. And I think, um, so it kind of stems on that. And then I started looking at, you know, how could we keep something on the table that wasn't menu-sized, whereas, like, it, where if you're eating it, and, you and you know, we're not pretentious, but we use a lot of words that people wouldn't normally, wouldn't normally associate with. Fermentation, kombucha, yeah. stuff like that. And, and some people might feel put out by asking a asking the waitress that and so I thought how can we do like a glossary that's like a mini book and I thought we'll just we'll just do a mini menu and then from that we'll describe basically what we're about in in six or seven pages Um, and the first two weeks kind of people ignored it thinking it was like a specials book Um, and then yeah the last two weeks people have been asking to take them home and um, and stuff like that which is great And, and I think the whole glossary at the back just we just keep adding to it so every time we learn something new We'll put it in the back of that book, um, and yeah, and I and I think we kind of describe it um, on one page the seasons that we have to work with. So a lot of the big issues we had in the first six weeks of opening was people saying, "Oh, can I have a lemon wedge with my fish and chips?" And we seemed so pretentious by saying, "Well, no, because uh, <laughs> you know you can't grow lemons in a, in the UK, you know, yeah. and, and stuff like that." And and I think with this now they come and they realise that like you know we literally we're not being pretentious it's because it's not in season yeah so our fish and chips we haven't got peas on all year round um right now we have sprout flowers we have an abundance of sprout flowers that are being supplied from a local guy and we saute those down we add a little bit of um, our homemade vinegar to it and we serve it with that and um and that's what it's about it's about forcing us to be creative in a way that that is still a default option so if yeah. you order chicken it's still chicken mm. But it's what we serve with it, yeah. Um, and that's it. It's, it's putting that looking glass twist on it, really. Oh, cool. Well, that was a great chat, and hopefully, um, you know, we might be able to do some more in the future. Yeah, so absolutely. A bit more, but um, it'll just be a nice eye opener for a lot of people out there to know what's out there, especially people in Cheltenham. So, if you're listening in Cheltenham, come down to Looking Glass and uh, yeah, hopefully see you soon. Out. Yeah. Cool. Thank you very much. Thank you. So that's it. I hope uh, everyone enjoyed listening to that. I certainly um, thoroughly enjoyed it. So I just find it really um, interesting to, to hear um, and learn about Leon's sort of perspective. Uh, he kind of mentioned in the podcast that I'd be um, working with them a bit. And uh, I can explain that a bit more in a separate video, in a separate podcast. But uh, briefly, I'll be helping them out on their allotments um, whenever I get some time. And... Um, everyone knows, or most people know, if you've been watching my YouTube videos and, and things like that, you'd know that I basically want to be sort of a farmer one day, or a market gardener, should I say. You know, I don't want to have acres and acres and of a huge piece of land and massive tractors and that kind of thing, but more sort of on a smaller scale um, sort of thing. And uh, this year, hopefully, um, well, not hopefully, I'm going to be growing a few bits and pieces to experiment and learn and teach myself, but also to sort of sell on a smaller scale to a few people. And um, so Leon's going to be helping me 
understand what chefs want, what they need, and you know, it, it's really useful to have that because I'm not from the industry. And to sort of have um, someone who's got the expertise in food and, and what is uh, um, popular or fashionable, the timing in cooking is, is awesome. You know, and obviously I'll be growing things all um, seasonally as well. So um, yeah, I'm really, really looking forward to it. But I'll get a bit more into that in a separate podcast because I, I can speak quite a lot about that and explain what I'm doing and, and all that sort of thing. So um, yeah, that's it. Uh, hopefully I'll get to do another episode sometime soon. And if you're in Cheltenham or the local areas, go take a look at the Looking Glass. You will not be disappointed. It's really, really nice in there. Leon's really nice and all the staff uh, seem really, really friendly too. So uh, yeah, that's it. I will chat to you guys next time. See you later.